Well, good morning. My name is Craig. I am one of the pastors here. When was the last time you felt safe? Like, truly, nobody's coming after me. If I can take a deep breath, I'm safe. When was the last time you felt that way? Where do you feel safe? See, lots of us, maybe we think back to childhood. We can think back to those places where we're like, oh man, when I was there, nobody was, nobody needed anything from me. Nobody was asking questions. For me, it was, uh, my, my grandmother uh, lived on Lake Sunapee in New Hampshire. And I remember I grew up one of eight and that naturally is just a chaotic place, but then there was also a lot of other chaos. And I remember as like an 11-year-old kid, I would just sit at the bottom of Lake Sunapee. I loved it, especially in the rain. I don't know if that's safe to do, but you're already wet. Uh, like when it's really raining and the water is just kind of moving, I just remember just feeling this calm of nobody can yell at me down here. Nobody can tell me what to do. Lots of us have different places like that. For, for, some, for you, it may have been when you were a teenager and someone for the first time tossed you a set of keys. Now you're like Cormac McCarthy and you're like, I'm hitting the road, baby. Freedom, safety. Maybe you grew up in a house where it was around the dinner table. People used manners. The phone didn't ring. They took it off the hook for a little bit. So you're like, what? Off the hook? What does that mean? Wherever you were, wherever you grew up, maybe you didn't grow up in a safe home. But when was the last time you felt truly safe? And what in the world does the Bible mean when it says, God is our refuge? What does it mean when the Bible says, God is our refuge, our shelter from the storm, our place of safety. What in the world does that mean? See, we, we all know, we all know, regardless of how religious you are or irreligious, we all know we live east of Eden, right? This isn't how things are supposed to be. Relationships that are supposed to be places of safety are places of turmoil. Be that spousal, boyfriend, girlfriend. Is that, are those always safe places? At work, can we really be ourselves or does our boss, if we let our guard down, someone's going to take our position? It's not really safe. Church. If we come to church and we let people know who we really are, will they be a place of safety or will they use that against us? We all live east of Eden. I've never, I've, I've sort of been in a tornado. I didn't grow up in, uh, in Missouri, as I seem to say every week. Sorry, nothing personal there. Uh, but I, I've been in one tornado, and the Willets, many of you know the Willets, they were at our house, and the alarm goes off. And like, like, I'm like kind of useless in that situation. Like, what do we do? Like, is this real? Is this like a thing? Is that a test? Like, we got to go in the basement. 
All right. Some of you were around here in 1998. I think it was called the Southridge Tornado. If you just go online, the damage is just catastrophic. I think it was like the southeast part of town, just buildings. It's really nice in a tornado to have shelter. When those winds are blowing, it's nice to know where you can go. When the winds started blowing at my house, all of a sudden I realized, oh, wow, there are a lot of windows in my basement. Uh. When the Bible says God is our refuge, what on earth is it talking about? We've been in a series called Primary Colors. And we've been saying that Genesis 1 through 3 are the primary colors that color the rest of Scripture. They color the way we see everything. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to dive deep into that. But we're going to do it in a way that I'm just going to upfront say you're going to think is super weird. You're going to be like, what is happening? This is an odd way to think about the Bible. All right? I don't know if many of you were around here almost it was like a year and a half ago. Uh, we went through a series called What is the Bible? And I said something uh, that, that offended some of you. And so uh, I just want to quote the great Woody Guthrie. Everybody know who that is? Thank you. you sh it's the 4th of July, for goodness sakes. You need to know who Woody Guthrie is. This land is your land. This land is my land from California. Man, that's awesome. Yes, you need to know Woody Guthrie. He's the godfather of folk. No Woody Guthrie, no Bob Dylan. You know who Bob Dylan is, right? Are we okay? I'll just leave. I'll just leave. All right, Woody Guthrie once famously said, All of my words, if not well put, nor well taken, are well meant. All right, he said that in 1949. And so I said something here that, again, sometimes intentions go out the window. It was well-intentioned, but it, it offended some folks. When we were going through the What is the Bible series, I said, what if we're reading the Bible wrong? And a few people have come to me and said, like, I really didn't like it when you said that. I'm like, well, what did you hear me saying? Like, I heard you saying we don't care about the Bible, and like, we're, you know, you're way smarter than us, and we don't get it. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't like that either. And I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. So if you heard me saying that, if you even remember that, you're like, why are you digging this up? If, if that's you, I apologize. <laughs> Don't listen to people like that, all right? Older, wiser Craig would have said, what if we bring assumptions to the Bible that the Bible doesn't have? So I'm not saying we're belittling the Bible. This is a church that loves the Bible. This is a church that exists because people love Scripture. We want to orient our lives around it. And we always, we often, I, all of us, bring questions to the text that the text isn't asking, and we bring assumptions and a worldview and a way of seeing things to the text that that's not always how the text sees. And so we have to say, are we open to another perspective? And things get filled out. This morning is one of those mornings where I didn't know about this till a couple of years ago, and it's this thing that's in the background of the Bible— it's in the background of the Bible, but then when you see it, it's everywhere throughout the rest of the Bible, all right? And so, just a word before we dive in, we're talking about one of my favorite, absolutely favorite themes of the Bible, and once I say it, you're going to be, okay, I'm starting to see this, but at first, you're going to be like, this is weird and crazy, okay? So, let me just say a word about how we teach the Bible before we jump into it, 
All right, if you think I'm standing in like a targeted circle, like, you know, like the target logo, in the center of that circle right here are our convictions. These are the things that if we're wrong about, just like shut, lock the doors, man, all right? Like Jesus is God, right? He's the only life and happiness found in him. He's the way to the Father, all right? If we're wrong about that, shut it down. All right, those are our convictions, as we move out from the center, though, we have probabilities, all right? Hey, we think this is probably what the Bible is teaching, all right? If we're wrong about this, we'll still spend eternity together. There's people we love who see things differently. Probabilities, all right? Then beyond that, though, in the outer rim of the circle, we get possibilities. It's possible the Bible is teaching this. All right? And we're not going to get fighty over that. Yeah, that's possible. It's possible, not possible. Okay? And I don't often preach possibilities. And if I do, I definitely tell you. I'm like, hey, I just think it's possible the Bible says this. Today, we're going to talk about a probability. This is probably what the Bible is teaching. If I'm wrong about it, I'll be disappointed. But, you know, we'll get correction in the end, and it'll be fine. But Christians for thousands of years, Jewish rabbis for thousands of years have taught this. It has just fallen along the wayside, and we lose it. And so when we start talking about it, it sounds bizarre. But again, we're not going into the possibilities. We're not even going into the hypotheticals. We're, we're staying in the probables, okay? I feel the anxiety rising a little bit. I just want to say, I'm going to tell you what I'm saying right out of the gate, and I think you'll be like, oh, phew, wait, what? Okay, Eden is a mountain, okay? That's, that's, that's where we're getting at. You're like, oh, phew, and what? Okay, and... Before we get there, I'm going to take my wedding band off because Jimmy Fallon once got a ring avulsion. Don't Google it. It's gross. I don't want to get a ring avulsion. But, okay, again and again and again, the Bible makes this statement. Can everybody see what this is? Okay, we may not know Woody Guthrie, but we know the rock. All right, this is a rock. Again, again, and again, Scripture says, God is my rock. That's correct. Well done. When the Bible says, God is my rock, I often had a mental picture that included this guy. God is my rock. Okay? Now, did anyone else have a similar mental picture as I? Okay, a couple of us. What good is this? God is my rock. Well, I guess if someone's coming at me, I can throw this at them, right? Or maybe I'll get like super jacked because I'm picking up this rock and carrying it everywhere. Like when I hear God is my rock, uh, what? All right. Now some of you are like, obviously it's not talking about, it's talking about like a big boulder, right? Something that's solid and secure. Have you ever tried to live on a boulder though? Like it's uncomfortable. It's like God is a place where you have to keep moving or you'll get back pain. I just want to open the perspective, and it's all over Genesis 1 through 3, but it's in the background that when the Bible says, God is my rock, that's rooted in Genesis 1 through 3, and then it's central to the entire story of the Bible, and we will start by going, huh? And we will end by going, whoa. Okay, and that whoa, the theological word for that whoa is worship. We'll be like, God's amazing. Holy cow. Life is worth the living. 
Like, if God is like that, sign me up for two. But we have to walk first from, huh? Okay? So I get it. It is, huh? Like, one of a, a, a company that teaches the Bible called The Bible Project, my wife and I love them, they taught this, and then they had a Twitter thread that was like 20 posts long explaining like, hey, when we said that, so this is, it's going to hang with me for a second. If you can hang with me for a second, it answers all the questions about shelter from the storm. When scripture says God is your refuge and your shelter, it is inviting you to um, live on a mountain. And that's foreign to us, be, not just because we live in the Midwest and we're like, well, mountains, I don't need mountains, right? Not just because of that, but because of, like, modern warfare, okay? So, anybody in here who's, like, my age and under, in Star Wars Episode Three, what's the famous line at the end of the movie that's really controversial? It's over, Anakin. I have the... Yes, I have the high ground. And if you're like, no, that doesn't matter. You have lightsabers, right? I've been told that even today, the U.S. military seeks the high ground because it's an advantage of at about three to one. All right, three to one. My, my, my resources are better used when I have the high ground. The closest thing that we can relate to this today of like understanding this is what's happening in Ukraine. Right? Like, but in my lifetime, I've not had to live thinking, like, I, I need to seek safety. I need high ground. That's not the world that the original authors of Scripture lived in or the readers. When they hear the description of Eden, their mind naturally goes, this is a mountain. You're like, what? If, you ha- if, if you're still thinking, like, A, why does this matter? And B, I'm not convinced. This isn't the Scripture we're going to, but Ezekiel 28, 14 just comes out and says, Eden is a mountain. It's, it's talking about the Satan in verse 13. It says, you were there in the garden of God. He ordained you when he was on the mountain of God. The whole story of scripture is about getting back to that place of safety. We all live east of Eden. We all live looking for safety. You can even argue you can even argue that all conflicts occur because two parties seeking safety, their agendas collide. Right? Look at, I mean, look at what, if you listen to what Putin said about why he even invaded Ukraine. He feels threatened. They're going to join NATO. They're coming after me. Right? Safety. We all live in a not safe world. And you can summarize the story of the Hebrew Bible by saying it's an invitation to say, come back to that mountain. Come back to that place of safety. God is our refuge. He is that mountain. We're going to talk about it. We're going to get back into Genesis, but we're going to go to Psalm, where a Psalm is someone who's, David is meditating on this truth and he applies it to his situation. And then when we start to see how central this is to the biblical story, we start to see exactly what it is David has in mind when he says, God is my refuge. He's lifting me up upon that rock. Right? He's not talking about back pain. He's not talking about this heavy thing he has to carry around. He's talking about, get me back to that place I was made to live. 
with you in a place of safety, in an unsafe world. All right, so Psalm 27 is where we're going to be. Psalm 27, we're going to read the whole psalm. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. Psalm chapter 27. What does it mean that God is our refuge? Psalm 27. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from Yahweh, this only do I seek. What is that? Right? That must be very important. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of Yahweh and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a what? Rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Yahweh. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Yahweh, I will seek. Don't hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my Savior, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong and take heart and wait for Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, sometimes what we need feels out of reach when we need it. God, when life comes at us, when chaos comes knocking on our door, we need you, but you don't always feel safe. Father, help us to really be people who understand what it means to live high on that rock. That though the world is coming after us, though there's not safety, you're safe. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Did you know, did you know that there are wolves in central Missouri? You did not. Well, let me just tell you, I grew up, I grew up in New Hampshire, and our, our mascot of my high school was a wolf. 
okay? And so I don't know why or how. It's New Hampshire, right? Live free or die. Uh, someone brought a wolf to a basketball game once, and I kid you not, this is a real thing. The wolf was like, you know, in front of the stands, and uh, it howled during the game, and the game stopped, right? If you've never seen a wolf, you're like, oh, they're just like dogs. A wolf is like a dog if a dog was half bear, okay? They're huge. Well, you're just like, those paws, they're huge. You know, like little Red Riding Hood is all of a sudden coming into clarity, right? Now imagine you and I, we're walking on the MKT Trail, right? We're just minding our business. We're having a delightful time walking, all right? And then a wolf comes out, okay? What's going to happen? Not this. Hey, Craig. What's your theology of death? Hey, you, what's your philosophy about safety? None of those conversations are going to take place. You know what's going to happen? And we run. All right? it's, it, it's not actually probably possible for us to philosophize in those moments. Our brain senses danger and then sends all the energy to parts of our body that help get away from that danger. That's why, like, frail little people, when their kids get stuck under a car, can lift it, right? They're not thinking, like, all right, you know, what's the angle of trajectory? Like, what, how, how much force do I need to apply here based on, is this, oh, how much do you think this car weighs? No, their brain just sent them, right? You're, we get in survival mode. When the world feels like it's coming after us is often the time where what we need the most, we are least able to access. What we need the most is to be in God's presence. What we need the most is a relationship, and that feels the most difficult and the most impossible. Theology matters. What you believe about God matters. And when there's a wolf on the trail, what you really believe about God flies to the surface. You can say... The Lord is sovereign. He's in control. He causes all things for my good. But when you see that wolf, you get theology in action. You get, theologians call that practical theology. Psalm 27, if we're just reading it quickly, can sound like a theologian encountering a wolf on the trail. Look with me back again at verse uh, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? That's a really unfortunate, like, who should I be afraid of? Nothing out there to bother me. Right? I don't believe that's the psalmist's heartbeat, because just keep reading. He says, wicked are coming to devour me. Verse 2, an army is besieging me. He's naming fears. And it's not just like physical harm. Like, well, no one's physically coming to harm me. Uh, look at what he says in verse 10. My mother and father have forsaken me. Right? It says uh, in verse 12, false witnesses rise up against me. People are gossiping. Right? They say things about me, and they're not true. So it's not just like, oh, there's an army coming. I'm not scared. What he's saying is he's, he's preaching to himself. 
He's naming his fears and he's reminding himself. He's saying in the storm, we can experience shelter from the storm because we experience fear. I, I grew up in, in a, an environment where anger was how we just navigated life, right? Like, and I thought it was super healthy. Like, I, I, if you were to ever hang out, like, we'd have these family powwows, and basically just the whole family get together, and everyone just yells at everybody else. So people would hyperventilate, people would scream, rah, 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 rah. Right? I just thought, oh, this is like a healthy family, right? This is how you navigate, you know, disagreements. And then I got married, and my wife's like, this is not healthy. I saw what you saw. We're experiencing it. This is not a normal, healthy way to interact with people when you have a disagreement. I thought, oh, well, okay, anger. Anger is what psychologists call a secondary emotion. By that, they mean, like, anger is real. We don't minimize it. But typically, when we're feeling anger, it's because that's not the realest thing happening there. There's something else happening underneath it. Fear. We fear something is going to be lost, right? Uh, my dad's a mechanic. If anyone in here has ever spent time in an auto body shop, some of the most fearful places on planet Earth. Like, what? You have a bunch, of, a bunch of people who don't want to be seen as incompetent, and then they don't know how to do something, and then they get angry. Oh, the stupid tire won't come off. You know, they don't make cars like they used to. Like, they don't? I think they don't, but I don't, what? What? Fear of being seen as incompetent, creates anger. What is that? That's someone seeking shelter. And the place they seek shelter is anger. Anger offers a sense of safety. People are going to judge me. Well, not if I call them a name first. People are going to hurt me. Well, not if I... It's a sense of seeking safety. We all seek safety. And sometimes, sometimes the places that we seek safety, like we need, we need anger, right? If like you're thinking you're living in the, the Ukraine and that tanks are coming at you, you need to get in that fight or flight. You need to get out. It's not safe. You gotta get, you're in an abusive home. Like someone's coming at you. You need, you're, you need to get out of there. But a lot of us then have learned to navigate life that way. And then, as they say, what brought us to the party ain't what keeps us at the party. What brought us to the party, what helped us survive in some seasons, isn't keeping us going. The shelter that it promised is now, it has holes in it. It's not really safe. And it's an invitation to either double down or to take a look at our shelter. And that's Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Both of those words are deeply relational. Light in Scripture represents God's presence. He's here. He's with us. It's relational. Salvation is also his presence. He moves toward us for our good, to rescue us. And he's saying, when we experience the storm, when we experience chaos, there is an invitation to a way through that chaos. 
But again, it's an invitation to something that we feel we're not able to access. How in the world can I be relational? Everybody's coming after me. Right? Church. Maybe I go to church. Well, now these people are coming after me. That's why verse 4 is so incredible. It names that. Though all this is happening, verse 2 and 3, though there's all this chaos, what can, what can we be confident of? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? Keep going. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to see him in his temple. Okay? So the answer here, there's like a temple. All right? Well, we keep reading. In the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. Another word for the temple. And set me high on a rock. The psalmist is painting a picture of the life-giving presence of God. And the place where you experience that life-giving presence is his high mountain temple. Eden, again, we, we read the story of Genesis 1-3. through You may have read that uh, oodles and oodles of times. And you're like, there's no mention of a mountain. I have no idea what you're talking about. We're going to look at it in a second, and it's going to make sense of some of the weirdest verses in Genesis 1-3. through But... What the psalmist is inviting us into is to experience heaven in the midst of hell. We all have experienced a taste of hell on earth. Some of us more than others. And scripture is not saying, trust God will make the hell go away. One day, yes. But what God is promising is that in the midst of that hell, you can experience Eden. And you can return to joy while everything feels like it's threatening your joy. Now, let me color some of this background I've painted a little bit. All right, we're going to do a quick scan through the Bible and talk about how central mountains are. And how then we're going to make sense of those two weird verses in Genesis 2, starting verse 10, right? There was a river coming out, and it went to Pishon, and then it went to the Halavites, and it you know, watered the land of Cush. And you're like, cool. All right, we're going to make sense of that verse in just a second. But we got to see how central mountains are to the story of Scripture. All right, so real quick, just so you know I'm not making it up, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. We're going to get our bearings a little bit. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 13. This is, uh, the prophet is talking about uh, the fall of the Satan. And so he's talking, it's, it's, like, it's like Yahweh talking to Satan. Here we go. You, Satan, were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, got it? So where was, where was the Satan? Eden. Great. All right. Every precious stone adorned you, a bunch of stones. Your settings and your uh, mountings were of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on where? The holy mountain of God. Where was the Satan? Sorry, this is a little bit of poetry. The Satan was in Eden. And another way to describe that same place is the mountain of God. Ezekiel just clearly says, Eden is a mountain. You and I read that like, what? Now, Ezekiel's just making things up? In the ancient Near East, they believed gods lived on mountains. 
actually kind of carried through even later. Like, so Zeus, right? Where does Zeus live? Mount Olympus, right? He lives on a mountain, right? Uh, Baal, if anybody knows this, this is like extra credit for life. Baal, does anyone know what mountain he lived on? Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. Uh, okay, and so mountains, when, when, when the ancients talk about, hey, this is the creation story, here's a place where God lives, they automatically picture mountains, right? That's why sages go live on mountains. Why? Because you're closer to the gods. All right, so Genesis 2 makes this weird statement that we Westerners who don't think about higher ground, don't think about it. Here's what it says. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It runs along the land of Asher. And the fourth name is the Euphrates. You're like, so what? Or maybe you're like, no, this is so we can find the Garden of Eden. We've got to find those four rivers. What the original audience would have heard is God is creating a place where he lives. So that's a mountain. And there's four rivers coming out of that mountain. Now, which way does water flow? Downhill. So there's a garden that is the headwaters of four, four rivers that water the entire world at that time. This is saying this is a mountain and it's the capital of the world. And this whole idea of mountain carries through the rest of the Bible. So the rest of the biblical story is, okay, we lived on a mountain with God. Then we got kicked out of that mountain. How do we get back to that mountain? So Moses... This is a big part of the story. Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. What is Horeb? The mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So as Moses is getting ready to start the rescue operation, where does God show up? A mountain. God's saying, I'm doing something new, and I'm going to tell you about it on a mountain, because mountains are really central. Isaiah, the great prophet, uh, as he's, he's talking about the last days, after, after Messiah sets up uh, his kingdom, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Micah picks up on that theory. Many nations will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We get to the New Testament. Jesus shows up on the scene. In Matthew's gospel, the first time Jesus goes public, does anybody know where he goes? To a mountain. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Now, this is where this gets really interesting, okay? We were wired to live with God in a place of safety. The world is not safe. So is that place of safety lost? Yes, well, how on earth do we get back to that mountain? What did we read in Psalm 27? In Psalm 27, we read this amazing statement. If I can find it. 
In starting in verse 4, one thing I ask, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Look with me again at verse 8. My heart says, seek his face. The psalmist says that mountain has been lost, but his one heart's desire is get back to that place of safety. Because what do you see in the place of safety? The beauty of Yahweh and his face. Sometimes when the Bible translates the word face, it just uses the word presence. The temple, garden temple sanctuary, the higher ground, that safe place, Right? And why do the rivers come out of there? Because it's really great to have safety, but if you're surrounded, they can just starve you out. Less if you have a water supply. Then you can stay a long time. All right? This is a really safe and secure place. And then we blew it. And so the story of Scripture is, let's get back to that mountain. Oh, but we left it. But the New Testament tells a story that says that mountain actually has a name. And that mountain moves into your and my neighborhood. All right? Jesus, in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and they're talking about the temple, which was on a mountain. But remember, there was an original mountain temple. All right? And they're talking about the temple, and Jesus says this, if you destroy that temple in three days, I'm going to build it back. And then they get into like an architectural argument, like three days? Like how in the world? You can't find contractors that fast. Like what in the world? This was like 40 years to build. How can I build it in three days? And they both give us this interesting commentary. They did not realize he was talking about the temple of his body. This garden mountain was lost but in the New Testament, we learn that this garden mountain has a name and he's coming after us. That is what Jesus means at the end of his sermon on a mountain when he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The invitation of Scripture is to live in his life giving presence. And the assumptions that that carries is we can't do that alone. He talks about in verse 4 and 5, I want to go to the temple. There's only one place where you can be totally alone in the temple. The Holy of Holies. And David couldn't get in there. He's talking about, I need to be around God's people in God's presence. We need each other. Alright? If we're in a snowstorm... Which, you know, those of you from Wisconsin and Minnesota, you just got to help us Missourians imagine. A snowstorm where we're like stranded, all right? And we all get our cell phones out. And you have a signal but no battery. And you have a battery but no signal. But she has a signal and a battery. Do you know what just happened there? By sharing our weakness... We all experienced help. Right? If, there, if, if no one, if everyone, I'm afraid, I got a cell phone, but don't ask me questions about it. We don't really get help. But in environments where we share our weakness, we're able to receive help 
and to return to joy. David is not just saying, I want to go privately into the temple and I want to privately just be me and Jesus and we'll be fine. This is, a, this is an event with others. And as we're saying, he's saying this, he'll hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. There's other people there. He's going to set me high. There's safety there and there's safety together. We need each other because we can have corrective emotional experiences when it's like, hey, they've experienced this too. Like they're finding joy. They're experiencing God's life-giving power. Maybe I can too. But it's very hard for us to get there on our own. You've got to willpower and muscle your way through it. But if you know there are people here with weaknesses, there are people here who have experienced chaos and have come here for shelter and they've found it. Maybe I too can find shelter here. It's a community. We need each other. That's assumed in Psalm 27. The mountain was lost. But even while the mountain was like, fell far away, the story wasn't done. The mountain has a name and he came into our neighborhood. And you're like, okay, great. It's still not done. And there's lots of people that that's true for. That's why as a church, when we talk about discipleship, what does it mean to grow and mature? We can't just stop at, well, well I, I come to church on Sunday morning. For too long, too many of us have thought that Christian maturity is, I've, I've had good church attendance, and I rarely hear anything on a Sunday that I don't already know. Therefore, I am mature spiritually. That doesn't jive too well with Psalm 27. Psalm 27, we see a person who names their fears, brings God into the situation, and then goes into the assembly, into the congregation with others. We need each other. That's why we, hey, we gather. We also really value connecting. That's why we have connection groups. We're trying to create spaces where we can receive that kind of care. Because we, you may be able, you may be able to experience shelter on your own, but you have a higher likelihood when you involve the people of God with you. We can't do it alone. Uh, the great Bible teacher Howard Hendricks said, many people burn out because they do not have a friend. The invitation, the invitation to live on that mountain is not an invitation to do it alone. That's our Western filter we bring to the scripture. We as a body say, we collectively want to live in this garden mountain. That's step one. Step two then is to recognize the identity we have as garden people. We are priests. What? The first time I ever met a priest, it was at like my cousin's something or another, and he was smoking out back. I was like, are priests allowed to do that? And he goes, shh, right? Like, if you're like, hey, you're a priest, I'm like, cool. It's actually an amazing identity that brings beauty and joy and energy to where we live and work and play. That's next week. Right now, the invitation is, what does it mean? for me to experience God as shelter from the storm, as a place of safety. 
We're going to sing a song in just a second that we're hoping is going to be an anthem for this series. Christ is a firm foundation. What in the world does that mean? How in the world can we experience that in a place where there's enemies at the gate? Where it feels just like there's, there's I, I can't, I got all this stuff to perform. I, there's no place of safety. Psalm 27 wants to help us see God in a different light. That we actually bring our attachment pain into our relationship with God. And he's totally different. He's not like your mom and dad. Verse 10, though mom and dad reject me. That's an honor-shame culture. Though mom and dad reject me, I will be received by Yahweh. And we're going to see as we trace mountains through the Bible, he's for me, he's on my side, he's coming after me, and he is relentless. Father, Father, help us to experience your safety. God, this shelter won't be lost. God, we feel the chaos of the world we live in. We're almost exhausted of naming it. God, I pray that you'd help us to, as a community, return to joy. That we would gaze on your face, that we live in your presence and we experience your pleasure. And that others, through being around us, would experience that as well. I'd be near the brokenhearted. God, help us to be a place of safety. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.